Hey, I'm Diana, and I love printing and design, typography and branding, books and publishing. I've traveled the world learning about trends to share with my students and with my readers. But I haven't forgotten where I started, writing papers about paper on paper. And now, I've created a podcast to share what I know with you. So, let's talk paper scissors. Welcome to our second Talk Paper Quizzers episode, where contestants answer trivia questions to compete for the completely fictional, completely worthless, yet highly coveted apostrophe. So we're mixing it up this time, and instead of having two contestants compete head-to-head, we have a live studio audience who is answering questions from the comfort of their own homes. How cool is that? So our audience is made up of university-level typography students. Now, as we go through tonight's game, uh, I feel like I, I'm, I might be a bit like Bob Saget asking contestants to lock in their votes on America's Funniest Home Videos, and I'm pretty excited about it. So there will be four rounds of questions and you will be asked a total of 25 true or false questions related to four topic areas. The four topic areas include, number one, formatting your type. So things like type size and line length will come into play there. Number two, focusing your type. And by that, I mean emphasizing using bolding uh, or underlining or italicizing. Number three is fine-tuning your type, so looking at kerning, tracking, hyphenation. And lastly, the final category is finessing your type, so looking at figures and small caps and initial letters. So we've got the four Fs tonight. We've got formatting, focusing, fine-tuning, and finessing. So in other words, the categories are about putting type on the page, making keywords stand out, adjusting the spacing and subbing in more suitable glyphs where necessary, all while sticking to best practices of typography as always. Contestants in our live studio audience, so what I need you to do is I need you to keep score at home. So a member of our audience with the most points at the end of the game wins the apostrophe. Now, we're definitely relying on the honor system here, so do keep track of how many you get right and, and then consequently, how many you've also gotten wrong. But we, we want those right answers as much as possible. Of course, that's the goal here. And in doing so, you may walk away with the very fictional, very awesome apostrophe. For those of you who are playing along at home, so just know that our live studio audience has about 15 seconds in which to, uh, to lock in their votes or make their final choice, whether or not the question or the statement is true or false. But for you at home, what I'm gonna ask is that once that statement is read, hit pause on your device and take as much time as you need to think about that answer. Once you think you know the answer, then you can hit play again to reveal that response. So grab a cup of tea, a glass of fizzy water, or maybe something a little stronger, and I invite you to play along with our pub quiz style show too. So let's talk paper quizzers. Round one, we are talking format. So let's do this. Question number one, 104 points. So 104, 104 points is equivalent to 1.44 inches. Very interesting. So half of our studio audience thinks that it's true and therefore the other half thinks that it is false. So the answer is in fact, 
true. So yes, inches and points uh, are the two major units that you really need to know to work in the world of design and layout. So there's four, uh, sorry, there are 72 points to an inch, remember, and to convert points to inches, you simply divide the number of points identified by the number 72. So brush up on your typographic math if you got that one wrong. If you got it right, fantastic. Here we go, question number two, 8P8. So that's the number eight, the letter P, the number eight, translates to eight inches and eight points. Let's see if you know the answer. Lock in your votes now. All right, here we go. So 42% of our studio audience thinks the answer is true and therefore 58% believes it is false. And the answer is false. So this actually translates to eight pikas and eight points. So not eight inches, but eight pikas and eight points. There are 12 points in one pika and points are a subunit of pikas, remember. So eight P eight is actually, if we want to convert that only to points is 104 points. So there's a lot going on there with numbers and math, but think that through again, and you always wanna think in relation to what, how many points or pikas are in an inch. I always use that inch as the go-to reference point because it is, uh, it is that kind of, that thing that never changes. So always use one inch as your reference point and think about the, all the different uh, units of typographic measure and how they relate to that one inch. Question number three. The larger the point size, the longer the line length should be. So lock in your votes now. So 72% of our studio audience believed that the answer was true and 28% says false. So the answer is true. So as the size of text increases, fewer characters will fit on a given line. Therefore, the line should be extended accordingly. So remember that line length, also called measure, and point size of type are interrelated and really should be established together. The general rule is to have between 45 and 75 characters Per line. There's of course instances where this will this this rule won't always hold up, but it's a good rule if you're not sure how long to uh, to make that measure or that line length between 45 and 75 characters per line. Next question: Letting is measured from the baseline of an upper line of type to the cap height of the line below. 33% of our studio audience believe the answer is true. 67% said false. And the answer is false. So remember that leading is measured from baseline to baseline, or you could really measure it also from X height to X height or cap height to cap height. Both of those work as well, but you're measuring one entire line of type and not just the space in between. So remember that the type size and letting relationship is expressed as a fraction as well. This is another thing to keep in mind and just kind of to understand and know in regards to letting. So that type size letting relationship is expressed as a fraction. So type size being the numerator on top and the letting value is the denominator below. So default letting, if you remember, is 120% uh, of the point size of the type you're currently working in. So if you are using Adobe InDesign and you have 10 point type that you are formatting your document in, uh, not touching the letting value in InDesign would yield you a letting value of 12 points. So 10 point type, default letting, 12 points of letting. This is expressed as 10 over 12. 10 slash 12, 10 points of type, 12 points of letting. So 
Oftentimes, you'll also have less leading in display type versus the amount of leading used in the body copy of an article. For example, that's pretty typical. But all is to say that leading is measured from baseline to baseline. It's that full uh, that that full um, uh, line of type, and not just the space in between lines of type. All right. Next question. The question is, rivers affect both ragged left type and ragged right type. 65% of our studio audience believe the answer is true. 35% said false. Okay, you guys need to do a bit more studying on this topic. So the answer is in fact false. So remember that rivers impact justified type, not ragged right or ragged left. So what rivers are, they're those gaps of uneven word spaces that exist when a line of type is stretched to the sides of each column uh, so that there are no ragged edges. So a ragged edge appears if, um, if you have something that is aligned left or aligned right. But if something's justified, it is, it's, um, kind of equal on either side. So that's when rivers can happen, when these word spacing gaps, these really weird gaps in word spacing, run through blocks of text and impact the overall color and texture of the type. So remember that the overall unified color and texture is the result of really consistent letter forms within a typeface, and it's a, a sign of really well-constructed good type. Now, here's a tip. If you squint at a block of text, and there aren't blobs of black or white, your piece has good color or good texture. So a good balance between marking and spacing. Now you can reduce the presence of rivers in your block of justified text in a number of ways, some of which include, for example, increasing the width of the column that you're working in uh, or increasing the number of allowable hyphenated words using a condensed version of a typeface versus its regular version, or even just decreasing the size of type. So all four of these solutions will give the page layout software just a little bit more wiggle room to adjust the lines of type and reduce the spaces between words. Now this is pretty cheesy, but if you are a Justin Timberlake fan, you can use his album Justified with the song Crimea River to remember this connection. So rivers happen with justified type. Next question. The question is, ligatures are special characters within a font file that represent two letters and are connected. They exist to help standard characters from bumping up against one another in a visually unpleasing way. Is that true? or is that false? Lock in your votes now, please. And here we go. So the answer, or I should say the studio audience at home, 86%, an overwhelming majority said true, and 14% said false. So the correct answer is true, yes. So common ligatures within a typeface include things like FI, FL, FF, FFI. So these are these kind of alternate ligature characters date back to Gutenberg's time when separate blocks of type would actually be uh, with the connected letters existed for the exact same reason. So again, it's to improve the overall color and texture of a passage of, of text. So without ligatures, you'll have some really messy letter um, kind of crashes, for lack of a better word, when, when the two letter forms run into one another, creating a dark spot where that crash happens. So ligatures help avoid that. They help provide better overall color and texture through the joining, the very strategic joining of certain characters that appear beside one another. We we finished round one. So what are the scores after round one? Of the six questions asked, to our studio audience, how many did you get right? Please be honest, the honor system is alive and well tonight. So type in that chat, how many questions did you get right? Oh, we got someone who had a perfect score. Joshua, you are killing it. We got lots of fours, lots of fives. Another six 
from Dorothy. Lots of fives. I'm so excited to hear this, everybody. I really am. <laughs> My typographic heart swells for your success. So keep track of those scores and let's move into round two. Round two is all about focus or emphasis, uh, emphasizing passages of text or keywords and how we might do that from a typographic standpoint. So here we go. The statement reads, <clears throat> it's recommended to use typographic techniques for emphasis sparingly because overusing them defeats their purpose. 91%, an overwhelming majority said true, and 9% said false. So the answer is in fact true. Yes, this is a bit of an easy one. So using too many techniques for emphasis, whether it's italicizing, whether it's bolding, underlining, changing the color, whatever, will really consequently make everything important. So this obviously defeats the purpose of placing emphasis in the first place. Now, I, I will be honest that I've received emails before where the sender was trying to do a good job of highlighting important aspects of the email and what I should read, but literally half of this very long email was in bold, all caps, and highlighted. So my eyes completely glazed over it, decision fatigue set in, so I really just didn't read any of it, as bad as that sounds. So by placing emphasis on only truly key words or phrases, your document therefore becomes skimmable and it's really uh, much more practical and usable and readable and we like it a heck of a lot better than seeing way too many techniques for emphasis. So it's kind of like crying wolf, right? If you say that everything is important, the reader will believe that none of it is important. Just something to keep in mind as you work through designing your documents. Let's move on to the next question. True drawn italics were created by the type designer and they appear slanted and more condensed than their Roman counterparts. Here we go. So our studio audience Again, overwhelmingly said, 92% uh, said, yes, this is true. 8% said, nope, this is false. So the answer is true. Yes, true drawn italics were or are what the type designer intended you to use in your document. So these are in comparison to pseudo italics. We also call them fake italics that are computer generated. So oftentimes the computer generated version is simply oblique type. It's Roman type that's leaning over to the side. And oftentimes when you click that little I button in word processing software, and I am guilty of it as well, but when you click that little I, it subs in the pseudo italic version. It doesn't bring in the true drawn italic version. So just be mindful of that as you are working through um, adding uh, italics to a professionally formatted document that true drawn italics look and feel and are crafted much differently than these pseudo italics. Next question. The statement reads, weight contrast, so for example, bolding type, is a way to create emphasis but interrupts the visual color, so it shouldn't be overused in a document. So kindly lock in those votes now, please. Of our studio audience, we have 85% that said true and 15% that said false. So I feel like these questions are too easy. So yes, it, the answer is true. Well done, studio audience. So yes, uh, and the best practice is um, in terms of bolding type specifically is to jump at least two weights to create strong enough contrast. So let me explain that. So for professional formatting, for purposes of emphasis, it's not enough to just go from a regular weight uh, typeface or, or regular weight uh, font that you're working in to a bold font but it's much more recommended to go from a regular weight to an extra bold, for example, or a light to a bold, right? With the regular 
the regular weight in between. So the idea is you want to jump at least two weights, specifically when, when thinking about and looking at bolding type. But um, in regards to this question overall, yes, you don't, again, want to overuse uh, anything that interrupts that visual uh, color and texture of your overall block of text. All right, next question. Underscores are a great way to emphasize text both for print and digital output. Excellent. So 19% of our studio audience said true, 81% said false. And the correct answer is, of course, false. So underscores or underlining text is really considered old fashioned. And it used to be the only way or one of the only ways to highlight text in the days of typewriters. So there are many, many other techniques that we know about now. And we have very easy access to through word processing and page layout software to help emphasize text that really should be considered before resorting to using underscores. So where underscores run rampant and are actually very useful is on the World Wide Web. So underscores are typically used to indicate that text contains a hyperlink as we all know and love and use all the time. So in this context, they work really well and they should be used for digital output, but not necessarily for print output, unless it's really part of the design and you're making a statement and it's not just bad typography. Next question. Adding color to text is always a great way to emphasize that text. Here we go. So this is a little more divided, although there is still a majority here. So 37% of our studio audience said true, while 63% said false. So the answer is in fact false. Yes. So color, adding color, is really one of the many ways to create emphasis, but it really should be used sparingly because it breaks up the overall cohesiveness of a block of text. So again, if it's for a, uh, to make a design statement, that's a different story. But if you're using it in a professional typographic, um, big block of text formatting situation, it's not necessarily the best form of emphasis that you want to lean on. So it's an emphasis method that can be really jolting, really stark. So use it when you really want something to stand out. Also, just as an aside, adding color to otherwise black text presents challenges when you're printing. So especially if the printing is being done using offset technology, because as we know, each additional color requires an additional printing unit. And different ink is required and more time is needed to prepare. Uh, so it just, there's lots of money, right? So you're looking at more money from, um, from a lot of perspectives on a lot of fronts. So if you can use an alternate method for emphasis that maintains the same black ink color, so italicizing, increasing the weight, even underlining, dare I say, this is often preferred to adding color especially for documents that will be printed and will be printed in large quantities using offset presses. Wonderful. So what are your scores after round two of the five questions asked, how many did you get right? Okay, we got lots of fives again. This is great. We got lots of fours. A six out of five, impressive. <laughs> Great, so I'm glad you are doing so well. So we are more than halfway through. Let's keep chugging. Here we go. We are into round three, which is all about fine tuning your type. Here is our next question. <clears throat> Center type alignment is the only alignment method that doesn't directly benefit from hyphenation. Please lock in your answers. All right, let's end that poll. Here we go. So 57% of our studio audience said true, 43% said false. The answer was, or is, I should say, true. 
so left aligned type benefits because it provides a tighter and more natural ragged right edge right aligned type benefits because it provides a tighter more natural left ragged edge and justified type benefits because it allows for fewer large word spacing gaps so center type is really the only method that does not directly benefit from increased hyphenation or i should say hyphenation in general next question generally speaking no more than three lines of successive type should end in a hyphen please lock in your votes now all right this one is more polarized so 58 percent of the studio audience said true 42 percent said false the answer is in fact false so Remember that typographic best practice states that no more than two lines of type right after one another, so successively, should be hyphenated. Any more than this, and it can actually have quite a significant impact on readability. But if we think back to uh, the good old days of Mr. Gutenberg, it's interesting because he did not pay attention to this rule at all, and he went crazy with hyphenations in the very first ever book printed in Europe, which is of course the 42 line Bible. Approximately one third of all lines of type in that Bible ended in a hyphen, which is kind of crazy. Wonderful, so let's move on to the next question. Here we go. There are seven distinct hyphen-like characters that all serve different purposes. They are the M dash, the N dash, the figure dash, the quotation dash, the mathematical minus sign, the hyphen minus, and the hyphen. Please lock in your answers now. 87% of our studio audience believes this is true. 13% believe it is false. So the answer is in fact, true. Yes. So while there are other hyphens, so Unicode actually offers 23 different dashes alone, which is crazy. Um, these are considered the most important. So just to really quickly go over these. So the M dash is equivalent in length and relative in size to the capital letter M in the type size you're currently working in. So these long dashes are used to mark an abrupt end to speech, what the, right? Or censor portions of a word. N dashes on the other hand are half of the width of the M dash and they're used between dates. So for example, the academic year is 2020 dash M dash 2021. And they're also used to connect compound terms. So for example, father-in-law, that compound term would be denoted using an, M, uh, an N dash, E-N, N dash in between. So N dashes are also used to censor individual characters in a given word. Now, figure dashes are used to separate numbers that aren't dates. So phone numbers, for example, and they're a little bit different because they reflect the same width as the numerals in a typeface to maintain the alignment above and below. So it just gives that consistent spacing that all of those lining numerals have already. Quotation dashes are a little more exotic, as, uh, as they say, and these are the longest and really least commonly seen or used. So they are used for spoken dialogue in a script. Now the mathematical minus sign is used for math. <laughs> that goes without saying. Um, but the hyphen minus is an interesting one because it's a catch-all character on the keyboard in front of you. And it is a stand-in for all of the above in a pinch. And really, if we're being realistic, it's just fine for the non-typographer's eye. No one's gonna call you out if you use a hyphen minus and you stick with it. And then finally, we have our humble hyphen, and it's used to connect words with combined meaning or words that function together. So an example would be, for example, uh, I'm looking for a dog-friendly hotel. So dog-friendly would have a hyphen 
in between. So this is called a compound modifier, two words that work together to create a single meaning, dog friendly, right? I'm looking for a dog friendly hotel, dog and friendly are hyphenated. And they are, uh, so these are the ones that really are meant for hyphens. But hyphens are also used to connect words that break over two lines. These are called marginal hyphens. Oh man, phew. I don't know about you, but it's uh, hyphens are a lot. They are very complicated, teeny tiny little dash who knew that they could be so ridiculously finicky. I digress, let's move on. <clears throat> Next question. Optical alignment is never recommended. Type should always be mathematically set. Okay, so 42% of our studio audience believes the answer is true, and 58% believe it is false. The correct answer is false. So often due to punctuation, for example, with large bounding boxes, and by that I mean white space on either sides, lines of text that start with punctuation, things like quotation marks, can appear visually off. So therefore you can apply something called hung punctuation, which what that does is it moves the punctuation into the margins so that that apparent white gap is removed. So optical alignment, or we could also call this visually eyeballing it, um, and using some of the tools and techniques in InDesign like hung punctuation is totally fine and encouraged if the composition just doesn't look quite right. So that's an important thing to consider. Mathematically setting type and having really wonderful alignment is important, but only to a point. If things don't look quite the way they should in terms of marking and spacing, optical alignment and visually eyeballing it is another option. Next question. In Adobe InDesign, tracking is controlled through the character panel where tracking, sorry, where the tracking value can be increased or decreased in increments to increase or decrease the amount of space between all letters in a passage of text. So there's a lot there to digest. Lock in your votes, but I will read it again. So the statement reads, in Adobe InDesign, tracking is controlled through the character panel where the tracking value can be increased or decreased in increments to increase or decrease the amount of space between all letters in a passage of text. So 83% of our studio audience believes this is true. 17% believes it is false. The answer is of course true. Yes, you guys know what you're talking about. So yes, the character panel is where you can control this. It seems like it would be a paragraph panel feature or something that you would control through the paragraph panel, but it's actually the character panel that you will find all of this in. Now, this is also where you can control kerning, which of course is the adjustment between uh, two specific characters, the adjustment of spacing. Now, tracking is a relative adjustment, meaning that the amount of space that's added or taken away between characters is relative to the size of the type you're working with. So, tracking isn't increased or decreased by a specific number of points, Instead, it's adjusted in increments and relative units. So for example, you can adjust tracking, you can increase tracking by 10 or 15 or 100 or whatever custom value you wish, or decrease it by the same amount. And those units are relative. And that spacing will relatively adjust or adjust um, and compensate for, uh, be compensated for if you increase or decrease the size of type you're working in. Next question. Kerning should be done both in headlines as well as in longer blocks of text to improve the color and the texture of all type on the page. Kindly lock in your votes now, please. 42% of our audience said true, 58% said false. The answer is false. 
Kerning is finicky. It's time consuming. It is only necessary for headlines or short passages of text, especially if they're going to be viewed at large sizes. Because if you're viewing it at a large size, you're also magnifying any spacing issues that you're trying to fix by kerning the type. So nobody yearns to kern, let me tell you that. And most fonts have excellent pre-established kerning tables, which are the spacing rules that are internally programmed into that font file. So kerning is really reserved only for short passages of type that are typically seen at larger sizes. Next question. Speaking hypothetically, if you were to pour sugar Yum. In the crevices between the letters of a line of text, approximately the same amount of sugar should fall between each one. 67% of our audience said true, while 33% said false. And the answer is true. So where there is more or less sugar between letters, and that therefore refers to huge gaps or tiny spaces is where kerning is necessary. So however, I will warn you that kerning is really just a band-aid solution and not a fix for overall bad spacing. We did it. We made it through round three. So what are the scores after round three? You were asked seven questions in this round. How many did you get right? We got some fives, lots of fives. Six, woohoo! Way to go, Sydney. Dorothy got six. Great. It looks like you guys are on the right track. I'm curious who is going to win the apostrophe. We've got one round left. Let's do it. Old style figures contain glyphs that can extend below the baseline as well as have varying ascenders. Lock in those votes. Okay, this question was obviously too easy. <laughs> so 95% of the class said true, or rather 95% of our studio audience said true, and 5% said false. So the answer is in fact true. Yes, old style figures blend in better with the rest of the characters in the style of the typeface that's being used. So this is in contrast, of course, to lining figures. So lining figures are designed for use in tables or situations where the numbers need to align or sit on top of one another from one line of text to the next. So old style figures are best used if or when incorporating numbers into a paragraph of text. So for example, uh, a date, right? So the, the today's date or um, a year, someone's age. So this will help improve the overall cohesiveness, texture, and therefore readability of the document, which is what we're trying to always achieve. But be warned because the default figures that most page layout software uses um, is the lining numerals or the lining figures. So you may have to dig in a little bit deeper into the alternate characters to find those old style figures. They are common in open type fonts. Next question. Small caps are shrunken versions of their all caps parents. So while it's not generally okay to set a paragraph of type in all caps for the implied shouting, as well as the impact on readability, it's okay to set a paragraph in small caps. Lock in those votes now. Okay, this one's interesting. So our studio audience said, 45% said it is true, 55% said false. So it was much more even, uh, even response this time, which tells me that we need to work a little bit more on this area. So the answer is false. So no, you do not want to set a paragraph in small caps for the same reason that you don't want to set it in all caps. It's still really shouty, even though it's small and shouty. I mean, my 
three-year-old is small, but she's still shouty. <laughs> and uh, It's also difficult to read. So our brains don't read individual letters, remember. Um, we read shapes of words. So these shapes are created by the variation that upper and lowercase letters create. So those little mountains, those flat plains, and those little dipping valleys created by the shapes of the letters that form the words, that's what we rely on to read quickly. So having all of those letter shapes occupy the space between the baseline and just below the cap height, in the case of small caps, really does not make for a readable document. So um, excellent places though, if you want to use small caps, if you do want to incorporate them, really good places to use them are in situations, for example, when you're abbreviating a word in a paragraph of text, uh, they're good for headlines, they're good for subheads, and even they can even be used to stylize the first line of text after a drop cap or a raised capital, for example. So these are times when small caps make a lot of sense, but setting an entire paragraph of text is definitely not recommended to, uh, to do that in small caps. Next question, and we are nearing the end. So here we go, drop caps and raised caps are both examples of initial letters. Lock in those votes for me, studio audience. Let's see what you got. So 88% of our audience said true, 13% said false. That doesn't equal 100. I'm not sure where that math comes from, but there we are. There are the answers or there's the, the stats. The answer is true so drop caps remember can be quite large and they descend into a block of text at the beginning of a paragraph so good practice is to drop them down an odd number of lines so three lines or five lines for example uh, that's a really kind of best practice for using and dropping down those drop caps raised caps on the other hand sit on the baseline of the first line of text and they simply extend above that block of text. So drop caps are I kind of liken them or, or think of them like they are the, the part of icebergs that exist underwater, while raised caps are kind of like the part of an iceberg that is raised above the water. So that's kind of what I use to help me visualize each of those. Now, these letters are often very ornate, very stylized, and they can often be a lot different from the actual text typeface that's used. So what they're, what they're basically doing, they help draw the reader in, and they kind of draw that reader's eye into the beginning of a block of text. So it's a visual equivalent of someone shouting like, hey, look over here. That's what a drop cap or a raised cap, both of which are initial letters, that's what they're designed to do. Next question. Alternate characters are versions of letter forms that are distinct from original characters and can offer more visual interest. Please lock in those votes now. All right, this one was obviously too easy as well, but the answer is true. So 92% of our audience said yes, true, and 8% said false. So examples of alternate characters include things like the option to use a double story G um, in place of or in, in, um, in comparison to a single story G, or the use of ascenders that are very stylistically different from their original, or a decorative terminal at the end of a character, something that looks a bit different than the original character. So alternate characters, I like to think of them kind of like the spices. Hmm, there you go, the spices in your typography kitchen. They add a little extra flavor, a little extra maybe interest, and some zest into your regular character set. So where, um, uh, yeah, that's, that's my comparison tonight. And maybe I'm just hungry, but that's my, that's what I liken it to. They are the spices in your typographic kitchen. Next question. When considering adding color to text, so either sparingly or globally, 
the most important factor to consider is how your color choices affect contrast and therefore how they affect readability. So our studio audience knows what they are doing. So 96% said true, 4% said false. The answer is in fact true. Yes, so this is an easy one as well. So what we want to think about, so I mean a passage of text really should be readable above all else. There are certain exceptions to the rule, but by and large that passage of text that you are formatting, that you are typesetting, should be readable. So most commonly, um, readability is that most important factor and the use of color comes in afterwards and contrast is critical, remember. So black text on a white background will always have the most contrast and is therefore the most preferred for long passages of text. So even using a form of, of gray, let's say a 75% gray, is not definitely uh, not going to provide as much contrast on the whole as 100% black text. That's what you want for long passages of text. Next question, and we are so close to the end. Here we go. An octothorpe was chosen as the symbol for touchtone phones because it could act as a bridge connecting the technology of yesterday with the technology of tomorrow. Please lock in those votes. So 86% of our studio audience believe the answer is true and 14% believe, uh, believe it is false. So the answer is in fact true. Now, what is recognized as a hashtag today was not so long ago called an octothorpe and it was named that in the 1960s. One of the primary reasons that the octothorpe was chosen for use on touchtone phones of that time was due to the fact that that symbol could act or was a part of the ASCII character set for computers, but it was also present on current typewriters. So it was able to bridge the gap between yesterday and today and then tomorrow. So typewriters through to computers. Now, octothorpes in general, I won't get into it here, but they have a long, long history that dates back to ancient Rome, believe it or not. They weren't called octothorpes at that time, but they have a long, long history. So we're coming to our final question. Here we go. It's been a night. The last question is, the Octothorpe's recent history as a hashtag is so remarkable because the Octothorpe symbol was brought in by Twitter at the last minute. The ampersand symbol was initially supposed to be used to categorize tweets. Hmm, interesting. Let's lock in those answers. So of our studio audience, 57% say true and 43% say false. So I think I got you guys with this one. So the answer is in fact false. Now the story is remarkable because the hashtag began outside of the walls of Twitter in kind of this groundswell movement um, from Twitter users as a way to categorize tweets. So it was spearheaded by Twitter user and Silicon Valley guy, uh, his name was Chris Messina, and he actually approached one of Twitter's co-founders to suggest using the pound symbol, otherwise known as the Octothorpe, and now known almost universally as a hashtag to categorize tweets. So Twitter did not want to take on this responsibility or maybe they just didn't see the value in this feature yet. So Messina and his pals began using this categorization system that we now know as hashtagging, right? So it's kind of iconic. So it obviously caught on in a huge way. And Messina is an interesting guy because he never worked for Twitter and he maintains that, and I quote, the hashtag was not created for Twitter. The hashtag was created for the internet. So there we have it. What are the scores after round four? Of the seven questions asked, how many did everybody get right? The honor system is of the utmost importance in this game, of course. 
So you're keeping score at home. How many did you get right of the seven questions? Got lots of sixes, that's great to see. Some fives. Fantastic, so I am, whew, I am pooped. This is type, set, match. We made it, 25 true and false questions on the topics of formatting, focusing, fine tuning and finessing type. So I want you to take just a second, do a little bit of math, add up your four numbers. How did you do overall? The suspense is killing me. It looks like we have a tie. Ooh. Oh my gosh. Okay, so we are gonna have co-recipients of our apostrophe. So we have Dorothy and we have, who else did we have? Dorothy and Joshua. So if you guys uh, want to say a few words, I'm handing you your apostrophe through the screen. Do you have anything you would like to say? <laughs> Silence. <laughs> Feel free to unmute yourself and say something if you'd like. You are the two big winners. Okay, Dorothy is saying in a very quiet way through the through the group chat. Uh, she's saying, wow, thank you. I wanna thank my parents. Joshua, man, a few words, thank you. But wait, I have one more turn of events. So congratulations again to our winners, but I have one final bonus question for everybody. Are we ready? I don't know if you're ready for this. It's pretty good. Are you ready? Maria's ready. Anyone else ready? Sarah's not ready. Okay. Let's do this. The question is, bears eat beets. Bears eat beets. So kindly lock in your final bonus question now. So of our studio audience, 76 said true, 76% I should say said true, 24% said false. Oh man, you guys got to study up on your office. So Bears beats Battlestar Galactica. The answer is false. Bears beats Battlestar Galactica. And if you get it, you get it. So thank you all for playing along here tonight. It has been an absolute pleasure being here with you, with our live studio audience, and I hope everyone at home had some fun playing along too. So good type and good night.